After all that, I hope you're not disappointed. Well, we're uh, in the book of Revelation, which is a fitting place to end. And uh, I have uh, called this uh, message, The Dwelling Place of God is with Humanity, a personal experience. And after I wrote that title, I thought, you know, this looks like it could be in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> um, but you'll, you'll figure out uh, why in a moment. But let's, let's read a passage of scripture and then um, uh, we'll get started. We're in Revelation chapter 21, so we are really at the end uh, of the Bible. And it's verses 1 through 7. Revelation 21, 1 to 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said to me, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. The one who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Since I'm uh, wrapping up this, series, this chapel series, I've entitled my message, the same title as the series itself, The Dwelling Place of God is with Humanity. It's also because the title of this chapel series comes uh, from this passage in Revelation that we've just read. You have heard these three chapels referred to as a lecture series, but I hope you don't mind this morning if I turn aside and take a more personal tone on the subject. After all, the subject matter of this series, the dwelling place of God with humanity, is ultimately a personal experience. It involves you and me and God. You and I in an intimate relationship with God is at the center of God's heart. When I say personal experience, I don't want to make the mistake of making this solely an individualistic matter. However, it is you and I who make up the people of God and you and me together who experience God's presence both individually and corporately. This is the reason for the subtitle, A Personal Experience. So allow me to start by recounting for you a very personal story. May 28, 2016 is a day that forever altered my life, or maybe I should say my outlook on life and death. May 28th was a Saturday like most other Saturdays. 
The day before, I had just finished teaching a three-week course, summer course, on the book of Acts. And as my usual practice is, I slept in a little bit. I had an appointment at 9 a.m. to Skype with my sister in Belgium, so I had gotten up and eaten breakfast and was getting ready for the call. While I was setting up my computer to take the call, I suddenly had a searing, burning feeling in my chest that kind of started in the middle and radiated outward. Now, acid reflux is an inherited problem in my family, and I've had more than my share of heartburn and acid indigestion. My first thought when I felt the discomfort was, uh, it must have been something I ate. The pain subsided almost as quickly as it came, so I didn't worry too much about it and went on with my Skype call. After the call, I headed to take a shower and get ready for the day. I, I remember while I was in the shower, the searing pain came back again, but again, within a matter of moments, was gone. This repeated discomfort was getting a little concerning, but I continued to feel fine and went on with my day. The funny thing is, is that the burning feeling only came two or three times that morning and only lasted maybe a few seconds, not more than a minute. Well, my wife Jolene and I had scheduled an appointment to have coffee with someone at one at Starbucks in Target. Around 1 p.m., we pulled into a parking space at Target, and, was, and I was just getting out of the car when my phone rang. I didn't recognize the number, and since we were heading inside to meet someone, my first incl inclination was not to answer the phone, and actually, I don't really know why I did. After I said hello, the person on the other end of the phone said, Phil, this is Dan Rector. Now, I don't know how many of you know Dan. I know that some of the longer standing faculty will know Dan because Dan was the children's ministry professor for many years here at North Central University and is now retired. <clears throat> Dan has always been a wonderful friend to me and our offices were across the hall from one another for many years. Dan and I don't talk often and I hadn't talked to him easily in more than a year. His call was totally unexpected. Well, since we were running close on our time, I continued to talk to Dan as I walked into Target. What was particularly striking about our phone conversation was Dan's first question to me after he said hello. He said to me, Phil, are you all right? Is anything wrong? I said, yeah, Dan, I'm fine. He said, the reason I ask is that I was praying this morning and your name came to mind and I was just wondering if you're doing okay. When someone calls you like that out of the blue, right, and asks you that question, it's a little disarming. Is something wrong? Especially when you haven't talked to the person for a really long time. Nevertheless, I assured Dan that I was fine and we talked maybe five minutes just catching up on life. Since my wife and her friend were waiting for me, I ended the call pretty quickly and headed over to join them. I hadn't been off the phone with Dan for more than 10 or 15 minutes when that searing pain in my chest came back. By this time, I was deep into conversation and didn't really say anything to anyone. Contrary to popular opinion, when you have a heart attack, you don't grab your chest and start screaming and fall on the floor. 
That's just in the movies. Honestly, my wife and her friend didn't have any idea what I was going through. I'd probably actually make a pretty good poker player. I continued to engage in conversation, but this time the pain wouldn't go away and it was getting worse. I started squirming a little in my chair, hoping that changing position might make me feel better, but it didn't. Meanwhile, I'm starting to compute in my head what might be happening. And I, my, friend, my, my wife and her friends still have no idea what I'm experiencing. I didn't want to interrupt a good conversation. However, at this point, I think it was the pain down my left arm that kind of clinched the deal for me. All right? So I very calmly and very calmly paused in the conversation and said, I'm sorry, I need to go. <laughs> Honestly, that's what I said. <laughs> I turned to my wife and I said, Jolene, you're gonna to have to drive me to the emergency room. It was very calm and collected. <laughs> she looked at me in shock, of course, and started to get up to leave. It was the subsequent, subsequent walk to the car, maybe I should say the stumble to the car, that made me realize whatever was happening was not good, right? Now, what we should have done was call an ambulance. But thinking straight in those situations does not come naturally. Jolene drove me to the emergency room at top speed. I mean, we were doing 60 miles an hour on Plymouth Road. Again, I do not recommend that at all. But have you ever noticed when you're in a hurry, it seems like everyone else is really, really slow? It's like, I'm dying here. Will you please get out of the way? It is uh, probably why they have sirens on ambulances. So we hit high, we're, hitting to, we're heading to West Health and we hit Highway 55 and the, the light turns yellow. And I don't know if you've ever sat on a cross street at Highway 55, but the lights are excruciatingly long. And I said to Jolene, run it, run it. Because I knew if we stopped, I was dead. At this point, the pain was agonizing, and we finally got to the emergency room. Jolene dropped me off at the front door. I literally stumbled up to the desk, and the woman said to me, may I help you? <laughs> and I said, yes, I think I'm having a heart attack. And she says, may I see your ID? <laughs> I'm not kidding, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And I'm like, are you crazy? And I, fumbling for my wallet to get the license out to give it to her. Anyway, I did survive that, by the way. Um, they finally admitted me to the emergency room and they, they ran an EKG. After the doctor read it, he came into the room and I'm telling you, the look on his face is something you don't want to see on a doctor's face, right? He said, you're having a heart attack, and I, you know, tell me something I don't know. 
I was at that point in pain like I had never experienced in my life. And he immediately started barking out orders to the nurses, and I had three or four nurses working on me, IVs, taking readings, asking me questions, shot me up with morphine. And then they asked me on a scale of one to 10, right? You know the question, what's your pain? 10, <laughs> 10. 10 was my number that morning, okay? 10, 10, just all day long it was 10. Well, you know, I have great respect for the medical profession, but don't you love it? They always ask the most amazing questions at the most extraordinary times. They ask what hospital I would like to go to. Like I'm in the, you know, ready to make that decision, but you know, I was thinking, well, I think I'll go to Abbott because I hear they have free breakfast with the room. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> so, fortunately, my wife was there. She is the oldest of three siblings, and uh, she has a pretty cool head. And so she told him what hospital, and then she immediately got on the phone, texting, doing everything to get people to pray. I think the most memorable thing is the peace that I had through the entire experience. And I don't think it was the morphine. I just remember having such peace. For one thing, I realized how out of control I was. There wasn't anything I could do about it. I remember laying on the gurney in the ambulance as it rushed down to Abbott Northwestern. The paramedic was doing everything she could to make me comfortable and to keep me alive, basically. She shot me up with another painkiller, which she said was more powerful than morphine, but honestly, 10, right? Still 10. Um, but I was surprisingly lucid and very talkative, which is not my nature, except when I drink coffee. Um, at this point, I, it's funny, I, at this point I pause and I ask her, I said, is the medicine making me talkative? She said, probably. So. In any event, when you're lying there, you have some time to think, and I remember thinking two things. One, the most encouraging thought I had was Dan. Dan called me. That told me that God knew what was happening to, be, to me before I did, and he had already called on the saints to pray for me. That let me know that God knows my situation, and he's walking with me through it. Two, I thought, well, if I die, I know where I'm going. Do you know what kind of comfort there is? You don't know it until you're, like, staring death in the face. That's very comforting. I realized I have hope, and that hope is guaranteed by a faithful God. As the psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and staff comfort me. When I arrived at the hospital, they rushed me into the catheter lab, and within 10 minutes, my pain was gone. It was truly amazing what they can do today. But the cardiologist leaned over in my ear, and he says, do you know what the Widowmaker is? I said, yeah. I had heard it called that before. I knew it was the main artery that runs down the heart. It controls the electrical center of the heart. That's why people go into cardiac arrest and die when they have heart attacks in the Widowmaker and their wives become widows. 
And he said to me, you had a blockage in your widow maker and your wife saved your life. Of course, she and I both know it was God, but I guess I should be extra nice to her. <laughs> Last month I went to the cardiologist and they released me, told me I'd have many more years to live and so I'm just thankful for God's faithfulness. So, now that we've turned aside to a personal story, I want to draw some connections to Revelation, believe it or not. You see, I think my personal experience of God in my moment of crisis is an example of the way God always is when he is with his people. God's habitation among his people is intended by God to be an intimate relationship. Look at the language used in Revelation. The new Jerusalem is described as the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. This is language not original to Revelation, but is found throughout the Old and New Testaments. Israel is often described as the wife of Yahweh. This city is actually not a city at all, but a symbol of the people of God, and God and the Lamb are at the center. The new Jerusalem is infused with the glory of God because God's people have now become one with him. This is a picture of oneness and intimacy that rivals any other in the Bible and is what God has been working toward for thousands of years. Let's put this intimacy in relational terms and allow me to use my own experience to help you. You might call this the big so what. What does the dwelling of God with humanity mean for me now, right now, and not pie in the sky by and by? Recall the two thoughts that came to me during my own crisis moment. The first one. God knows our situation and he's walking with us through it. Dan's phone call, right? Sometimes we forget this very simple truth, but God knows what we are facing, the pain we are experiencing, and he sees it even before we are aware of it. Nothing surprises God. This is the message to the church through Revelation. These are churches in crises. The very first picture we get in Revelation is one of intimacy. Jesus holds in his hands the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands which are the churches. Following this vision, each individual church receives a personal message from the exalted Christ. Listen to the pattern of the messages to the, each church. There are three parts to the message. Look at the God you serve, listen to the God you serve, and hope in the God you serve. Look at the God you serve. To the church in Ephesus, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. To the church in Smyrna, these are the words of him who is the first and last who died and came to life again. To the church in Pergamum, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Secondly, listen to the God you serve because he knows your situation and my situation. To Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. To Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. To Thyatira and Sardis, I know your deeds. Every message to every church is like this. They contain the words, 
I know. God knows our situation and has intimate knowledge of who we are, where we are, what we're doing, and that we belong to him. We are the people of God, and he walks among us. Hope in the God you serve. Each of the messages ends with a promise. To the one who overcomes, I will give. And there's a different gift each time. Even in the passage we read this morning, God makes that same statement once again in Revelation 21. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. God promises reward to those who are faithful, and that is our hope. Now, the message pattern of the Revelation messages is really just a miniature version of the bigger message in the book. Even in the book, these three things ring true. Look at the God you serve, listen to the God you serve, and hope in the God you serve. Revelation 4 and 5. Look at the God you serve. In Revelation 4 and 5, you have what is probably what I think is the most profound vision of the throne room of God in all of Scripture. Why? It's at the very beginning because the message to the church is look at the God you serve. The God you serve is sovereign. He's all-knowing, and he's in control of everything. Everything in Revelation proceeds from the throne of God. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls. They are... They open up for us a visionary experience that is often frightening and difficult to understand. But there's one message that comes through consistently, and that while God does not promise that we will not have difficulties, he promises to preserve us through them. That's why Revelation ends like it does. We win, right? He is asking us to listen to the God that we serve. The final point, hope in the God you serve, is the final message of Revelation. This is the second, this is the second thought that came to me when I was laying on that ambulance gurney. We have hope, and that hope is guaranteed by a faithful God. This message of hope, the New Jerusalem, as well as the book of Revelation itself, fall appropriately at the end of our canon. The passage we read this morning comes as a breath of fresh air at, the moment in, in, at, a, at this moment in Revelation. Look at the last line of Revelation 20. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Ouch! But then what does John say? And I saw... There's an expression that runs all through Revelation, and I saw, and I saw, because he is seeing, he is seeing the God he serves. And he saw a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation. This is, this line in chapter 20 is not the end of the story. 
It's the one on the throne who writes the end of the story. In this passage is only the second time in Revelation that God himself appears to speak from the throne. The first time was in Revelation 1.8. In both instances, God affirms the same thing. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Here he also makes another statement that I think gets to the heart of the matter. Write this down because these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. In other words, our hope is grounded in the faithfulness of God. Every one of us who experiences a crisis needs to know that we have hope. We have to know that no matter what happens, we have a certain future. This is the message of revelation to the church, to you and to me. Let me uh, take a moment then to wrap up what we've been saying then through this series for the last few days. What do we see in Exodus? God takes a prophet up on a high mountain, reveals to him a covenant that he's making with a chosen people and then gives him the pattern of a sanctuary that will represent his, his presence in their midst. He is in fact, he in fact is in their midst and walks with them through everything they experience. Provides them hope of a promised land and then is faithful to keep his promise. God tabernacles among his people in the wilderness. The tabernacle we learn from the writer of Hebrews is really just a shadow of the reality in heaven. In fact, this is why Moses is told to be sure to make everything according to the plan shown him on the mountain. This tabernacle becomes a permanent temple, eventually, in this promised land given to Israel. In the New Testament, God tabernacles among his people in the form of Jesus, who creates a people that are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, and both individually and communally are his tabernacle on earth. That's you and me. Exodus and Revelation book in the Bible. I know Genesis is there, but just go with me. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> At the end of all things, God once again takes a prophet, John, up on a high mountain and shows him a tabernacle that is now descending from heaven. This time, it isn't a shadowy pattern, but the real thing. The unifying work of God is complete through the revelation of Jesus Christ. God and his people are one in the eternal tabernacle of his presence. This is our hope, guaranteed by a faithful God. So let me leave you with this. Life may not be easy, it may be tragic at times, but I can guarantee you two things, and I can guarantee them because I know the one who does guarantee them. God knows our situation, yours and mine, and he will walk with us through it because he walks among his people. 
And two, we have a, we have a lasting hope guaranteed by a faithful God. If you are experiencing a crisis in your life today, and we're all in different places, God is with you. I can tell you that. I can tell you that from my own experience. I can tell you that uh, even in the face of death, there's peace for those who serve God. So no matter what faces you, God has been there before. We heard from Dr. Amy yesterday that Jesus' death was a sad and difficult experience for his disciples. But yet in his death was the dawn of a new day. The Apostle Paul and the writer of Hebrews talks about that someone must first die before a covenant can go into effect. That's what Jesus did. And Revelation tells us that God finished what he started. He's a, God, he's a finisher. He's the God who, who ends what he begins because he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. So I encourage you to put your hope and your faith in God. And if you would like to pray this morning or you would like prayer this morning, you're, certainly the altars are open. I'm going to close with a word of prayer and you can feel free to come forward and spend some time with the Lord. Why don't you stand with me? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we exalt you today. We thank you that you are indeed our Father and that you do know the, your children in an intimate way. And Lord, we thank you for the strength that you give us, the hope that we have. Sometimes we feel hopeless. Sometimes we feel anxious. We feel abandoned. But Lord, we are not. You are always right there. And you know already. And that you call upon your saints to pray for us. You send your Holy Spirit to comfort us. And you strengthen us. And you meet us where we are. And so I pray this morning for those who might be going through difficult times that they would know this truth, that you are a God of hope and that you guarantee it by your faithfulness. As your word says, it is done and that we can live in the world of the finished product through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless you.